You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Usually I say a couple of things, but I'm not going to start with that this evening. It's not that often that we get uh, this terrible triad of this uh, stature together. So uh, I'm just going to start by asking if people got any questions or comments. Let's just start with that. Um, you may have questions for the some of the authors here, some of whom you see often and others you don't. Please. A ladder. Oh. Got to hear you. Oh. What's your favorite part of the writing process? <laughs> That's a good question. Uh, um, Do you that? Uh, the, the gentleman asked what's uh, our, our favorite, or individually. It's not like we do it all together. <laughs> uh, the, what, what, is, what is the favorite part, part, part of the writing process? You know, if there was some way to make a living doing nothing but thinking about the writing process. <laughs> it's, yeah. called, it's called blogging. Yeah, yeah okay, there you go. Uh, I said make a living. Yeah. Uh, um, I, 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 I've always enjoyed thinking about writing more than the actual writing uh, and spinning out uh, great uh, concepts and, uh, and possibilities and everything, which always in thinking about them, you think, you know, well, this is going to be you know, an incredible masterpiece, and then you actually write it, and you realize it's not. Um, so, so at least for me, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's the pre-writing that's more enjoyable than writing. Probably different for these guys. Well, for my part, my favorite part of the writing process is quietly burgling the homes of aspiring writers and stealing their ideas. Mm. Uh, but second to that, I would have to say that I have more fun drafting than anything else. I mean, revision feels like work to me. And uh, pre-thinking is a lot of fun, but to me, writing is a special case of reading. And I'm even when I'm working from an outline, like on a novel, but especially when I'm working on a short story where I pretty much just follow the headlights, watching the story emerge from my fingertips is a whole lot like reading a book that I just didn't know was stuck inside my head somewhere. And I love the drafting. I just love it. That's by far my favorite part. Cool. Rudy? Um, yeah, I like when uh, I sort of really get into it and like getting ready for it and you spend a, a lot of part of being a writer is you know getting your head in the right place to actually do it because it doesn't really take that long to type you know a thousand words and if you can do that you've had a good day so it's but then when I finally get in the right place and I'm doing it and then I forget myself and I'm in this world with my characters so I like that a lot and I actually kind of like revising uh, I like to print it out, and then I t take it to the coffee shop, and then I mark it up, and then I, I type the changes in. I, I like the craftsmanship, you know, of moving things around to make it, make it feel just right. Like a, it's like a handwork. That's why you were a better writer than me. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, uh, it was Dorothy Parker that once said her favorite part, what she liked was having written. Yeah. <laughs> well, there's that too, yeah. And um, cashing the check. Yeah, I, I'm with Rudy. I like, uh, uh, well, you, that's not really what you said, but I like revising. Uh, to me, first drafting is agony, but uh, oh. the, the final, you know, tweaking I like. But. So what you're saying is I'm the anti-Terry. You and me both. Right, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. 
I noticed nobody mentioned groupies, by the way. Mentioned what? Nobody mentioned groupies as being their favorite part of writing. Groupies. Yeah. Uh, yeah. 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 Well, let me ask. Uh, Rudy actually uh, gave us a piece on writing, and I thought that was kind of interesting because to me it reminded. Uh, it was sort of one aspect of science fiction. It's maybe. Well, anyway, originally it seemed that it, st it would start with the idea. And then, you know, the idea of infinity or the idea of, what do you call it, reverse scale or something? Yeah, circular scale. And then you, and then the trans real comes, then you don't have to think up a lot of characters, right? You just right. look around the room. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you see, so when Rudy cheats, he actually <laughs> knows what he's talking about. <laughs> you know, whereas most science fiction writers, I mean, we're much more honest and come right out and admit, we don't have an idea of what we're talking about. You know, it, 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 it's really underhanded for somebody like Rudy to sneak in <laughs> actually knowing stuff. You know, uh, that that I, I find almost uh, unconscionable. I, I want to add to that by telling you a little bitty story. The novel I read an excerpt from it relies very heavily on some very specifically sort of odd characteristics of the interstellar transportation system. And a couple of days ago, I got a critique from one of my first readers, like a 1,500-word email with spreadsheets explaining to me why the transportation system could not have evolved an empire as large as the one I described the amount of time I gave it to because he'd essentially worked out the expansion wave fronts of the starships. <laughs> Talk about not knowing what you're doing. <laughs> well, that sounds helpful. Not, only, know, did, not only did he say you don't know what you're doing, he proved it. Yes! <laughs> With spreadsheets. I'm, it's well, the first always, time I've ever yeah. gotten critiqued by spreadsheet. There you go. There's always a way out, though. You can always just add some extra tweak. Well, you forgot the fermionic drive. I forgot to mention that. I, I, I forget which, which uh, longtime golden age science fiction writer had some story in which you know, they're going off to another galaxy or something and they exceed the speed of light. And, and the, the hero of the story goes, aha, so Einstein was wrong. <laughs> That's all you got. got that covered. Yeah. So, yeah, <laughs> and it's covered. You're, you're okay. There, there's a gentleman waving his hand about. I'm sorry. Oh, you're just swatting a fly. Okay. All right. Too bad, because if you had a question, it would come in handy right now. Uh, <laughs> yes, Steve. go ahead. Uh, Rudy, I first became aware of your stuff, I, I think, in the late 70s, early 80s, when, uh, through Omni. I don't. I never sold anything to Omni. It was a, <laughs> I almost sold something to Omni. Yeah. Yeah, I did. Yeah, I was in Asimov's and Fantasy and Science Fiction. I did sell one story to Omni. She Robert Sheckley bought it from me, and then Ben Bova said uh, they couldn't run it because it was too traditional. <laughs> and then the next issue, they had a story by Ben Bova that started with a countdown. <laughs> First sentence, four, three, two, one. I haven't seen that before. Well, I <laughs> never saw that before, yeah. Well, there's a rumor. I'd always heard, I'm like you, Steve, I'd always heard that Rudy 
under a pseudonym wrote the crop circle stories that put Omni out of business. But, uh, <laughs> no, that was Charles Platt. That that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, there was one interesting thing, uh, um, Jay. You, you, uh, just a word you used that I really liked. You talk about dirt sat. Yeah. That is so cool. Did you make that up or? Heck no. That's, I'm pretty sure that's a Silver Age word. That's a what? I'm pretty sure that's a Silver Age word, dirt side. Yeah, well, maybe it is. I have never heard it. It's kind of interesting, though, because, because, you know, there's nowhere else in the universe that there's dirt because dirt has a big biological component. I never – it was new to me. I thought it was kind of cool. I'd love to claim the credit, but honesty for fans. Yeah. Well, Cliff. Which book was that? The one you read from tonight. I mean, it's really, uh-huh. when, when you're talking about the, the 70s and, the, and, you know, even autobiographically, um, it's not such a difficult one. Well, he, he's saying you're so old, you're historical. <laughs> is what well, I always, I always wanted to do, I always wanted to write my autobiography. I, I thought it would be interesting to do. And, and then about two years ago, I almost died. I had a brain hemorrhage. And then, then I got well. They didn't have to operate on my brain, fortunately. And, you know, it just healed itself up. And then more, I th- or yeah, yeah, more or less. More or less. I'm no worse than I ever was. And then I thought, well, you know, if you are going to write that autobiography, this, yeah. might, <laughs> this might be a good time. Yeah, and, yeah. and Cliff, it's not historical nonfiction. It's legacy nonfiction. That's right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. But there was, I was still sort of fucked up for a month or two. And I couldn't decide if I was writing a science fiction book or a, or, or autobiography. <laughs> and then uh, I managed to separate the two strands, and uh, I, I wrote them separately. So the, the, no, the, the novel was called Jim and the Flims. It's about a guy who goes to the afterworld to, to save his wife because he killed her by accident. It's sort of an Orpheus and Eurydice story. And then, yeah, the autobiography... Uh, I did a couple of revisions, and uh, I was lucky to get Tor to publish it. Uh, somebody was just asking me, KW was asking me about that, and they weren't going to publish it, but then PS in England, they're sort of a specialty uh, science fiction press, they published it, and then Hartwell said, well, I guess we might as well publish it too. Yeah. <laughs> and we could get there. We can use their design. And uh, and then they, they also think, well, you know, with, as a mid-list writer, you know, my, I'm sort of getting closer to the edge of unprofitability for them. And they thought, well, maybe this will help break him out uh, to a more wide audience. Please. So I, I guess all of you guys have, have written steampunk. What do you think no. is especially compelling about steampunk these days? Let's uh, go to Jeter first on this because he invented steampunk, I believe. No, no, no. I, I merely invented the word. I mean, the, the whole thing would have, would have happened without the word and maybe with a, with a better word. Um, the, you know, I, I was down in at uh, World Fantasy Con in San Diego and I was on a panel with uh, uh, Tim Powers and, and Jim Blaylock and talking about steampunk. And uh, I, I, I think uh, uh, Jim made the most... Uh, Precise observation about it, where he said, "You know, it's 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 really an enthusiasm of people who like building steampunk stuff, you know, uh, and 
you go to some big uh, steampunk convention like SteamCon up in uh, Seattle that I was guest of honor at uh, this year or last year, and you know, yeah, there's 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 my panel, and there's the other literary panels, and there's this many people in them, and then there's the panel about how to build a steampunk anything, and yes. it's like, you know, uh, you know, it looks like a football stadium of people. It's true. Uh, so so there's what is a steampunk? Thing, oh, oh you know, like, 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 like a, a steampunk. You know, they'll do a steampunk pair of pliers. You know, uh, I have a steampunk My Little Pony. Yeah, yeah. Ooh, Ooh. Say anything. Right. yeah. so um, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, goggles I, I, I mean, and gears. I mean, this is, I mean, any object can be covered with steampunk, just like chocolate frosting. Just you know, <laughs> you know? And, and it's automatically better, just like chocolate frosting. You know. Um, and so I, I think there's a huge part of the enthusiasm, which is just that there, there's, you know, if, if you were doing retro Buck Rogers stuff, it'd be very hard to fabricate. I, I mean, you know, whereas steampunk stuff, you know, all the bolts and nuts and screw heads and everything, that's the attraction. So um, a, a big part of the enthusiasm is, 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 the, is the handicrafts. You might say it's riveting. It's riveting. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. There we go. <laughs> wow. You're right. It, it is more of a fashion thing. The, the non steampunk pliers work. <laughs> and you can do one. things with them. Uh, steampunk pliers look cool. Yeah, yeah. Well, and, and, and my imprecise answer to Echo KW is it's freaking cool. I mean, yeah, how could yeah, it, I mean, yeah, that's, that's what it boils down to. It's cool. That's, yeah, that's yeah. but in what way? Yeah, I think uh, if you have to ask, you don't understand it. Well, the, well, well, well <laughs> that's why I asked. This, this was it. Yeah, I, uh, we were talking about this at, at SteamCon, and I, and I said, to my mind, the, the, the steampunk aesthetic is the anti-Apple. Exactly. You, yeah. know, all, all, you know, when, when Steve Jobs, you know, back when he was really getting into the design stuff, talked about uh, Apple interfaces being so slick and everything that you wanted to lick them, and, I th and my reaction was, yeah, and they look like you already did. <laughs> you know, I, I, I said, you know, most Apple, I'm sorry if you're an Apple enthusiast, uh, but most Apple products to me look like, you know, um, um, wads of phlegm. You know, there's that shiny, glossy, smooth-edged look. You mean that the nice You're the guy way? with the with the yeah, but but in a nice Kindle way. They look there, like right? wads of phlegm, but but in a nice way. The, the, uh, the, the, Aluminum the, phlegm. Yeah, yeah. The great thing the great thing about, about about the steampunk aesthetic is that it shows an enthusiasm for machinery, where you really want all the 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 the, the skeleton and the connections and everything to be to be visible. You there there there's you know something kind of just intrinsically neat about all the spiky bits and everything. It's, it's, it's not a pre-digested uh, aesthetic. And uh, to me, I, I think it, it, that makes it somewhat admirable. What do you think, Rudy? Well, it's, I mean, he makes the point. It, it's a reaction to, you know, the modern Digital. things being so technical and, you know, everything's sort of hidden. You look under the hood of a car now and what the you, hell are those things? You, you, don't, you don't even, you just see this smooth piece of plastic that's yeah. covering up whatever it is under there. You know? yeah. yeah, but you know what it's covering up? It's covering up basically technology from Glasgow in the 1890s of a piston yeah, moving up and It is still down there, yeah. And 
and transferring uh, heat into linear motion, into rotary motion, through gears and everything. I mean, as modern as a car looks, it's still there. It, it's true. basically uh, 19th century technology, fundamentally. Well, but, and I mean, the other you're, you're touching back though there onto part of the appeal of steampunk, which is celebration of the inventor as hero, and a time when a person could kind of almost know everything. You know, it's, it's impossible to know everything today. No, no, no human brain has the time right. or the capacity. But at least, you know, at the time of the middle of the Industrial Revolution, which is sort of what steampunk harkens back to, you've got, you've got a nostalgia for that ability to make anything and do anything, which has uh, been long lost that. from the culture. Well, one thing about steampunk, it's sort of, so much of it seems fixated on the Victorian England. Hmm. And I think it would be interesting to see more steampunk that's set in, in the U.S., well, there's diesel punk, which is essentially steampunk set in the post-World War I era. There's what punk? Yeah. Diesel punk, oh, you're which is diesel. essentially steampunk in the post-World War I era. Yeah. Yeah, I, actually, up, up at Stan. Avram Davidson's Dr. Esterhazy mm-hmm. um, was, uh, is steampunk set in, in Eastern Europe. He, Dr. Esterhazy uh-huh. knew everything. Yeah. Well, well, certainly I, Tesla would yeah. lend himself to, yeah. to a U.S. steampunk. Yeah, I, I was on a panel up, up at SteamCon Seattle with, with a really smart young lady named Jamie Goh. And she's from a Malaysian background. And she said, look, people from my culture have an experience of the Victorian Empire that's a lot different <laughs> from the experience that people in England had of the Victorian Empire. Uh, and she was uh, approaching steampunk uh, from essentially an anti-colonial uh, right. viewpoint. And I said, wow, I mean, you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, we talk about uh, you, know, you know Victorian fantasy. Uh, an awful lot of it has gotten fixated into running up and down fog-shrouded alleys in East London, and we're really disregarding, you know, the the the, the whole part of the Victorian Empire that the sun never set upon. And I said, "Wow, I, I really, you know, I, I'm expecting great things from 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 you, Jamie. Uh, you you've you've touched upon something here that that's really important. Uh, the whole notion of a, a different take." Uh, upon a, a fantastic uh, Victorian uh, empire is uh, really worth pursuing. So, I, I'm, I'm, like I said, I'm hoping for great things from her. Uh, this is an open question. Other people, uh, Pat. Oh, yeah. Yep. The maker of Yep. Yeah, I, I mean, the, the, I, 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 talk, I talked to some maker uh, people up, up in, in Seattle, and I said, well, what's great about, about the maker connection in, into the, the steampunk thing is that they're the people who bring the punk into steampunk. I mean, punk was originally a, 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 a DIY, do-it-yourself musical uh, movement where it was like, no, we don't want to listen to Rick Wakeman anymore. We're just going to go crazy and just bash away at it our, our, ourselves. And so, the, you know, as, as much as people like myself and Jim Blaylock, you know, make snipey remarks about, you know, wouldn't it be great if people, you know, read some of this stuff instead of just, you know, making, you know, clockwork uh, hats. Um, <laughs> you know, there, 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 there is something really cool about, about that maker element. They, they, they are sort of saying, no, we're not going to take pre-digested design and technology. We're going to, you know, bash away at it and glue our own stuff on it and, and turn it into our own. And I, I find that admirable. Yeah. My favorite was sort of a Jules Verne uh, gear-propelled squid. Um, 
Again? <laughs> yeah. We have a comment in the back. You, yourself, please. You'd only have to once. <laughs> yeah. Good comment, though. Uh, yes, please. So one of my friends made a connection between the steampunk movement and the, the, the fascination of the Victorian era and the economic experience that we've been having in the last few years where it became so obvious that we had this great income inequity that almost rivaled the income inequity of the Victorian era. And I thought that was really that, that's a very astute observation. You know, as, as, we, as we slide backward into, you know, the Dickensian environment, uh, yeah, all of a sudden, uh, steampunk starts to develop an ability to make some very uh, insightful observations uh, about where we're at. Can I just chime in on that? Please. Uh, with, uh, you know, the latest and greatest not being necessarily available to the brightest minds of uh, young and unemployed, Necessity is a motherfucker, and you get a few uh, up-and-coming motherfuckers of invention. Yeah, I, I, I think probably right now the world's <coughs> most authentic steampunk environment is Slab City out in, out in the desert, where those people are literally, you know, cobbling together fragments of technology on, on no money. And, and making a, a livable environment for themselves. I mean, I mean that that's a reality-based environment versus something like Burning Man, which is just you know uh, uh, overpaid IT workers, you know, ha having a vacation in the desert. <laughs> Sorry about that. that yeah. Okay. yeah. Um, wow. Well, uh, uh, we've left out the fashion element. That's isn't why isn't you're that a big Terry. part of it? No, come on. <laughs> I, no, in that part of steampunk, is people want to dress like uh, well. And yeah, I mean, it, oh, it's, well, it's, it's, an, it's an artistic okay. movement across a lot of areas. It's, well, know, it's the yeah. case, really, at any SF con. I mean, it's not just at Steampunk cons. Right, but yeah. it's a different way of dressing. Yeah. Uh, it seems yeah. Like, the yeah. thing is, if you go to SteamCon, 95% of the people there are costumed. Yes. You know, you yeah. go to an SF con, yeah. the call costumes are an exception, not the norm. Uh, right. You know? and, and, Depends, and yeah. it, a large minority, but a minority. That's a, that's a subculture. And Steampunk costuming is the culture. Yes. Yes, they do. Yes, uh, we had we had a great presentation at, at SteamCon where people, you know, ta actually talked about the reasoning behind their costume and what would be the personality and what would be the story of a person wearing this costume. And uh, there was actually a a steampunk Tibetan native costume that was really I well thought out. I mean, this is what a, a Tibetan steampunk would wear. And it was based upon Tibetan native, you know, traditional dress, you know, run through a, 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 a steampunk uh, prism. It was fascinating. So I thought, you know, yeah, right, you're right. Don't read the books. Let's just. <laughs> Can on. we talk about something else? Yeah. <laughs> oh, okay. All right. Well, I mean, this is clearly a Ru Rudy lively. wants to yeah. move on. I have a something else question, but it's not for you, Rudy. Okay. <laughs> uh, Just so it's not Steve. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well but, played, Eric. But, but uh, actually, I wanted to ask Jay, you write specifically in two different subgenres that um, the only other... Yeah, I'm sorry? Well, all right. But, you know, um, 
you know, like space opera, high science fiction, and high fantasy, you know, off the top of my head, I can really only think of like Bujol, who, go, who goes there. Hmm. How do you balance them? How do you take the approach to doing both for these things that are usually separate piles, not touching? Well, I'll, I'll take the implied compliment. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> and with, with, with sure. great verve. Yeah. I thought that was a vicious attack. <laughs> <laughs> One man's attack is another man's compliment. Right, okay. <laughs> Um, a funny thing is Rick uh, asked me that on the break, almost that same question on the break. And the best answer I can give you is that each project is its own thing. And I, I put space between them. I, as I told Rick, I once made the mistake of writing two novels back to back. I mean, literally finishing a draft and two days later starting another draft. And I very nearly broke something doing that. Um, so, you know, if I'm writing, you know, my, my green series is, is teenage ninja assassin fantasy, secondary world fantasy. And, you know, my mainspring series is A Clockwork Earth Orbiting the Sun on a Brass Track. And this project, Sunsmith, is, you know, far future, big iron political space opera. And I can't do them too close together. There has to be separation between them. A what, a day or two? Yeah, maybe a week. Yeah. I don't know. You know, <laughs> I, you know it, but seriously, you know, I write the first draft and then I put it in the drawer and go to something else for a few months, maybe even write a different first draft and mm-hmm. come back to it. And then, you know, by the time I get... By the time I shifted gears, I've had enough time to realign my imagination, uh, essentially. Okay. Well, you've been promising us that Texas Cow Punk uh, novel, haven't you? That's the next project after the space opera. <laughs> my, my, my magical Old West book, Original Destiny Manifests Sin. Cool. Uh, so, so from the creative side, we get that. Now from the business side, do the... There's a reason I'm a lower mid-list writer. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. You, you start blurring the lines, you just, yeah. you know, you screwed up your commercial uh, Although, in, in all seriousness, my agent and I have hopes that the space opera will get me a wider audience. We're, we're actually really kind of hoping for that, so. Cool. So what's uh, they're going to do? You're going to do magical cowboys? Is this like cowboys and wizards? Well, I, I I started about six or seven years ago writing this. I got about hundred pages into this novel that was this alternate magical history of the old west, where the Mormon concept of Eden in the Upper Missouri Basin was literally true, and the children of Eden were in fact the Neanderthals who were hanging around in the Rocky Mountains. And of course, as far as I know, there were no Neanderthals in North America in real life. But this is fantasy, right? And uh, we, we are the Nephilim, the outsiders, the others, and we've taken over their narrative. Oh, and, right. you know, it, it, it takes a lot of the themes of American expansion and kind of transforms it through this quasi-biblical lens. And, oh. you know, I've, I, I, had, I, I wrote it and I realized it was a much more complicated idea than I had the skills to write at the time. And I'll put in a plug for myself. I showed it to Howard Waldrop at one point who said to me, and I, I can't even pretend to do Howard's accent, but he said to me, and this was about June, this is the best thing I've read all year. Go finish it. <laughs> yeah. Well, <that's, laughs> and I'm like, I, uh, if Howard Waldrop tells you that, uh, yeah, no, let me yeah. talk about that. That'll get your attention. And he, he and Maureen McHugh, in fact, told me, it was this at a Rio Hondo about th- four years ago, that I had a real structural problem with the book. And he and Maureen McHugh told me how to fix the structural problem. And what I realized actually while back working on the space opera is that the structure of the space opera, I'm writing 600,000 words of first draft as a warm-up to writing the old West novel <laughs> because I'm using this, the structure, a lot of the same structural things I'm going to have to make the old West novel work, I'm applying in the space opera. Hmm. What kind of structural problems do you have in an autobiography, Rudy? <laughs> <laughs> well, I know Rudy said Rudy starts his at the end when he f- figures he's going to die. So that's a <laughs> structural. That's well, it, it is, in fact, a lot of people do want to write an autobiography 
when they get older and then they run into this thing that you know they hadn't really thought about that your life is a it's sort of a fractal this branching you know every story leads to another story and then you say well how am I going to get this this thicket and then line it up as this sort of this this line you know this this particular thread and uh, I did two ways I, d I dealt with the structure one I basically decided to have a chapter on each decade and then in deciding what stories to tell I didn't push it too hard I thought of the the stories that would pretty naturally pop into my head and then uh, there's another thing I've been thinking about a sort of computer sciencey idea I've been pushing trying to get people more interested in it it's this thing I call a life box where uh, I think I got the idea for it Remember they built this robotronic head of Philip K. Dick and then they lost it on an airplane. Yeah. And then they f somebody built a new one. And then the way they would have it talk to you, at least I understood the article to say this, I'm not sure it actually did say it, was that they had a, a database of everything he'd written. And, you know, that's a lot. And then you could have something like a, basically like a Google search engine on there. And when you say something to it, it parses you know, your sentence and, you know, picks out a few of the words and then does a search and comes up, you know, with a snippet that, you know, relates to that. Like, basically, you Google search through his works for the, something. Because people do talk like that. I mean, you ask somebody a question and they don't really necessarily answer your question in any direct way. But they will start off telling some story that includes some of the key search terms that you used. That's what you're doing to me right now. That's, <laughs> that's all I ever do. <laughs> right, okay. And Philip K. Dick, Eliza. Yeah. Yeah. But it's it's better than Eliza. Uh, but that's going to be a very big product in about five years. Well, once, when I was first learning computer programming, I just for fun wrote a program that would take something that I'd written and then, very simple, would just type it backwards. And I was working on this story with Mark Laidlaw called Chaos Surfari. It was a surfing story where some guys tangle with a strange attractor. <laughs> and I convinced Laidlaw that the beginning of the story we should just take the end and run it through my, my word reverser. <laughs> and so the first page is, everything's backwards, you know. <laughs> and I remember arguing with the magazine, it was some small magazine, maybe it was Interzone, that they had to print that upside down as well. <laughs> <laughs> really going for the mass audience. What, yeah. what did Ben Bova think of that idea? <laughs> it's, it's too traditional. You know, <laughs> I tried something really similar to the time travel story. Well, when they went back in time, they experienced everything in reverse. And yeah. these two graduate students are trying to run a stock trading scam. And so a fair amount of the dialogue in the story was backwards. Uh -huh. And I couldn't get anybody to buy it either. Uh, <laughs> it was backwards in the sense they would say it in the wrong order? No, it was literally reversed. Uh-huh, uh-huh. So yeah. it was because... Spelled backwards. They, yes, because they were experiencing yeah. this, yeah, you know, yeah. in reverse. And that was the opening of the story? 
Well, it kind of wove all the way through. It was like a theme. <laughs> and you had a hard time selling yeah. that. <laughs> yeah. Imagine that. It was like the time I wrote a story set in 16th century England in which everybody, every man in the village was named Robert. Yeah. Which is actually historically fairly accurate. Robert the Brown, Robert the Smith, little Robert, you know. But boy, I, 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 nobody liked that. <laughs> well, yeah. uh, did you read Wolf Hall, the uh, famous uh, Booker Award-winning book? Uh, Wolf Hall was a... Uh, everybody was named Thomas in Wolf Hall. It made it difficult. <laughs> yeah. There was somebody in the back. I have a question for Mr. Dieter. I was wondering, uh, given, uh, given a follow-up to internal devices, any chance of a follow-up to Farewell Horizontal? Yeah. Oh, you know, um, Far Farewell Horizontal was, was originally supposed to be the, the first book in a trilogy. As a matter of fact, uh, there, there's, I, I think uh, if you look... Uh, yeah, uh, a couple of my books. It's it's actually in the in the books by you know upcoming. You know, uh, yeah, I'm gonna have to work on that. Uh, I, 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 yeah, was that uh, an isosceles trilogy or, or a traditional <laughs> trilogy? Just a traditional trilogy. Um, yeah, it, it's one of those things where you know, um, you know, there there are different kinds of, of film options. And there are film options, you know, like, like we all just give away to somebody who just, you know, graduated from film school and they said, hey, I'd like to make a, a movie out of your book. And that's one kind of film option where you go, sure, go ahead, kid, and, you know, bash away at it, let me know. And then there's a film option where, you know, it's by, you know, somebody wants to make a movie out of your book and uh, they actually once worked on a movie. And you go, <laughs> yeah, go ahead. The ultimate film option is one where the person not only pays money for the film option, because anybody can come up with money, but it's somebody who has actually not only made films before, but have made films before with people that you've heard of in them. <laughs> I finally got that on Farewell Horizontal. So I'm, I'm, I'm kind of really uh, keeping, keeping my fingers crossed on that. Uh, you know, it's, it's, um, so I think, gosh, if they make a movie, I, I better write a sequel real quick so I can cash in on it. Uh, but yeah, that's that's um, you know definitely uh, sort of simmering on on one of the back burners. And, and I confess to having written a steampunk short story in which I severely ripped off Farewell Horizontal because I like the book so much. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, Farewell Horizontal. I mean, it was back when you know um, you know uh, people were talking about um, big landscape novels like Ringworld and things like that, where you would have a big enough landscape that you could just keep on telling story after story after story. And that, that was sort of the original premise of uh, Farewell Horizontal, but then I got distracted. You know, so uh, yeah, I'm gonna be working on that. Uh, and yeah, I'm, go I'm gonna be turning up the heat on that a little bit, but I'll have to splice it in with the, with the, with the Kim O stuff, which is kind of my big passion right now, and, and which I'm kind of hoping will be eventually a 24 book Series, yeah, yeah. What do you think of our Sue Grafton? Yeah, well, she's you kind of the role model. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. Uh, she's somebody, you yeah. know. Oh, Kim O, Kim P, Kim Q. No, 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 no. If I were going to do it, I would have started with Kim A. Yeah, yeah, but no, it's just Kim O one, Kim O two, Kim O three. Well, it's, uh, it's almost rot thirteen when you start with O. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Cool. Are there any more questions or? Steampunky comments. Uh, uh, with the nice hair. <laughs> That's Whoa. not you. That's him. Yeah. <laughs> this is for KW. So your last few books have been on uh, self-published at D-Club. Yes, indeed. Is that, how's that working for you? Do you plan on 
You know, this is something that we were talking about quite a lot um, while I was being interviewed earlier. Um, the, my experience, and this has been confirmed talking with other writers who have spent, you know, decades uh, in, in, in the writing game, that, that what makes writers feel old and tired and discouraged isn't the writing. The writing is the fun part. It's the dealing with the publishing industry <laughs> that makes writers feel old and tired and discouraged. <laughs> and all of a sudden, there, there's the, this, this new thing happening where uh, the amount of abuse that a writer has to put up with from the publishing industry has a, has a limit to it now because you can finally say, screw you. You, know, you can't jerk me around anymore. I'll just publish the book myself economically and in a way that connects with, with you know, a, a certain amount of the audience. And that's what the e-publishing revolution is doing. Um, so in, in that sense, um, the, this environment that, that's coming about, it, it's really shaking up the print publishing industry quite a lot. They, 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 they are having to, to deal with this, something coming into their pasture that they, they, they never had to deal with before. And all of a sudden, a lot of writers are, are, are feeling sort of their, their second wind or their second career coming upon them. I mean, these Kim O books, which I designed from the ground up to be published as e-books, I wrote each one of them in two weeks. And that's like being a 20-year-old you know, writer again when you're writing that, 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 that kind of crazy pace. And it just felt you know, like all of a sudden, boom, it was happening again. And as I described it to uh, my friend uh, Mike Stackpole, uh, it's like um, all, all of a sudden you're not carrying around the, this 20-ton boulder on top of your shoulders anymore and trying to, to run, to, to, to run a, a sprint. So uh, in some ways, um, the print industry is going to continue, but for middle-list writers, there, there's going to be an option, and it's the option that frees you up. That's, uh, you know, if you don't have options, you're, you're, you're restricted as to what you can do. As soon as you have options, you, all of a sudden you, you, you feel an incredible sense of freedom. So um, uh, there are some print publishers who are looking at the Kimo books. If it happens, great. If not, you know, whatever. Uh, as long as I can, you know, still connect with people who want to read them off of the ebook thing. Uh, in that sense, it, it's it's very exciting, very invigorating. So so you know, you were seeing a lot of writers like myself and Mike Stackpole and Dean Wesley Smith and Chris Rush and everything, where we're keeping a foot in both worlds right now. We're we're doing print books. Uh, we're doing the the ebooks. It's it's going to be uh, you know, and and some projects are going to be suitable for ebooks only. Some books are going to be suitable for print books only. It, it's it's really I think we are right at the verge. We are about to enter into the true golden age of of writing and publishing, like like we've never experienced before. And you, they call you a depressing fellow, right? Yeah, I, I know. I, I, mean, just very I, mean, I mean, if this is so exciting that it gets somebody like me excited about it, it must be the most exciting thing in the world. That's very inspiring. It is. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm, getting, I'm getting excited about doing some e-books. Well, like well, a book that m most writers would want to do would be a collected edition of all your stories. And that's easy True. to do as an e-book. Yeah. And, and it would be hard to get somebody to, to do that in print. In it's hard to get way. somebody to do a collection of short stories at all at these all. days. Yeah. And just why not do every fucking story you've got? Yeah. I like that idea. Do it. Do it. Yeah, I'm Please. going to. Um, just for a bit of humor, when uh, 
did this Kindle and said the future, I said the ancient past. Oh, okay. I mean, as you know, as a joke mostly, but you're facing a situation where like the Kindle Fire is is potentially going to sell more color tablets to people in three months than the black and white Kindle did in its entire history yes. so far. This is reinventing itself faster than you can create a novel. You're, you're absolutely right. I shouldn't have said this is the future. I should have said this is the recent past. <laughs> yeah. this, this is the distant past. This is the recent past. Yeah. But I was kind of wondering, how do, you, how do you approach that in your, you know, obviously words are words, but this is going to change how you're approaching your careers. Now, kind of like well, one, one win in getting a book out as an e-book is then it's safe. It'll always be in print, basically forever. Yeah. From my perspective, Joe, you know, e-book's just a, a format, you know, just like a print book. And, and the way I think about it is I'm telling stories. And, and I, I, I'm being almost a little bit deliberately naive about that. But I, I frankly don't want to go into the publishing business, you know, and I, I'm probably, I mean, I have some stuff up on Smashwords and whatever, you know, I mean, I, I, I haven't ignored this, but I haven't dove deep in it because my best use of my time is to write another book or write another story from my point of view as a writer. Um, and I, I may be cutting my own throat to say that because I, you know, I really respect what, well, wait a minute, Mike Stackpole's a huge evangelist for this okay. and what people like Chris and Dean and KW are saying about it. But frankly, I'd just rather write another book <laughs> than the, but that's me, and it, it's still whether whether it's going to come out on Kindle or or, or Nook or iPad or, or you know in, in a print book or print on demand or, or what's the the espresso book thing they're doing now with mm -hmm. the, the instant books the instant paper books, it's still a story, and that's what's important to me personally. Yeah, yeah, no, and you're, Jay's absolutely right about this. Uh, we're, we're we're very much at at uh, the the beta stage uh, of e-publishing. There 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 is still a fairly steep. Uh, angle of, of getting work through it. it. It's not quite at the uh, push one button and, and it's out there immediately. Yeah. Uh, we're probably at most, I think, a couple of years away from really seamless, write it, push a button, it's published, it's up there uh, uh, sort of thing. Uh, so yeah, it, it's very early days yet. The, the, the parameters of the revolution are, you know, it, it's the proverbial you know, cloud on the horizon no bigger than a man's hand. We're, we're, we're going to see some uh, astonishing things and, you know, predicting the future about it is, is a real, you know, mm, yeah. You we, need a science fiction writer. For yeah, that. You, yeah, yeah. We need Where could we find one of those? Uh, yeah, yeah. But, and let me contradict myself just a little bit. I mean, there, there's, you know, literary criticism tells us that the introduction of the typewriter changed a lot of the characteristics of the novel. And it looks pretty clear that the introduction of the word processor, again, changed characteristics of the novel. Mm. And changes in production methods changed the characteristics of the novel. When, when, when Ian Ballantine invented the mass market paperback, right? And then you go back and look at the DAW paperbacks in the late 60s, early 70s. They're all 40,000 words long. Yes. You can't sell a 40,000-word novel today. I mean, it, yeah. it just can't be done. One of the things e-books do is completely change the economics of production. And so they may change the lengths at which we think stories occur. Yes. So, that may become important. I mean, I don't know. Right? Yeah. This is me being a science fiction writer very briefly. But I, I foresee categories in a large-scale sense, not genre categories, but length categories, 
mutating. You know, maybe it's possible to have 300,000 word novels. Maybe it's possible to have 30,000 word novels. You know, I, I don't know which way readers are going to go, but your technology is abstracting the length from the cost, which is not true in print production. Yeah, yeah. yeah I, mean, I, I mean, the finances make some, some things possible that otherwise wouldn't have been. I mean, if you're dealing with, with, a, with a Manhattan, uh, New York publisher, and you say, I've got this great idea for, for a novel, uh, and I'm pretty sure it'll sell 15,000 copies, well, the conversation's over. You know, you're, you're, they're not even interested in talking to you. If you can say, hey, I've got this great idea for, for a, 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 a novel, and I'm pretty sure it can sell uh, um, 15,000 uh, e-books, and I can make $2 off of each one, uh, selling them for you know, $4 or $5 to the, to the reader, all of a sudden you're looking at a financially viable, something, a worthwhile investment of your time. Which, you know, um, all of a sudden, you, you're, you're no longer restricted to that narrow opening that the New York publishers uh, traditionally represented. You can say, okay, uh, Bantam or Doubleday or Tor or whoever, you might not be financially interested in a project that would only sell 15,000 copies, but I'm certainly interested in it if I can make $2 off of each one. All of a sudden, I only have to do that twice a year and I, I've got a $60,000 a year income. And a lot of writers have lived for a long time on, on, on less than that. If, so. if, if the audience will forgive me, specifically part of what I'm interested in is, like, for instance, one of my favorite nonfiction books ever, Infinity of the Mind. I'd love to see an ebook edition of that with scale models. Yeah, actually, I, I'm working on that. In the book. Well, it's the and thing that, is. That opens an opportunity. I well, see, these old books, I wrote them before they even had e-rights contracts. So I'm, in fact, something I'm going to be doing this year is getting all my backlist of science books out as e-books. Though I don't know exactly what you mean by scale models. Uh, they're going to have the, the figures will be in the book, but I don't, I'm not going to write software so that the, the images, I mean, that's the dream book where you touch the, the, the figure and you can move it around and it's alive, you know. But uh, that's not going to happen. At least, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, well, one thing Jay said that interested me, it's if you are a writer or an artist of any kind, it's you actually spend, even though the thing you like is the writing, you do end up having to spend, I don't know, maybe a third of your energy just on getting your book out there and selling it and then keeping interest going in it and answering email. I mean, you, you can just get up in the morning and start answering email that relates to all these different things and, you, you know, you can piss away the whole morning doing that. It's sort of ironic because the, the reason that you become a writer is because you're not very good at business. <laughs> but or then, anything else. Yeah, <laughs> but then you, you end up having to do so much of that. Uh, well, one other slightly contrarian point. I mean, you're talking about you don't have to squeeze through that narrow window mm -hmm. that New York New York Publishing created. That's yes. been, uh, you know. But then I'm looking at at uh, especially the uh, the three older guys up here, include and I include myself, <coughs> who've been writers for thirty uh, some odd years, yeah, and uh, and have never <laughs> thought, uh, you know. I don't know how much of the fact that you 
have thought you were a writer and stuck with that career and done it is because of the thrill you got when you squeezed through that narrow window the first time. You felt special. And it's certainly true, yeah. At the beginning. Right. <laughs> towards the end, it starts to become that special thrill you right. get when you stop hitting yourself in the head with a hammer. All right. I, no, I agree. You're automatically going to feel better. I agree. Yeah. I'm, I'm well, kind of midway between those two yeah, points. You'll, you'll, yeah. you'll get there, Jay. Yeah, yeah. Well, at this point, in my last book, it was a little hard to sell it, but then I did. And I started thinking about, you know, this the old, I guess it's really a myth rather than a reality that in the, like the uh, the Inuit tribes, the, the the Eskimo tribes in Alaska, the, somebody gets to a certain level of health, you know, where they put you in an ice floe with a piece of blubber and then sort of shove that off and you float away. <laughs> That's like the end of the writer's career. You know? <laughs> 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 you got a piece of lumber. You yeah. lucky. <laughs> How big was the piece? Yeah. 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 That's your advance. You yeah. Know. yeah, yeah. I, I mean, when, when, when I think that uh, that um, Rudy and I, when we we got started writing, that was a still a period in in the the writing publishing world where mid-list writers essentially were pretty well assured that their backlist was going to be going in and out of print you know, over and over and over again and providing something of a, uh, a sinecure for your old age, that you would be seeing a new edition of some book that you wrote years and years and years and years ago would, 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 would start, you know, would come into print again. And certainly you saw that with, say, Robert Heinlein's novels were just going in and out of print and all Paul the time. Paul Anderson, and, and, and Bill Dick, and, and people like that. Yeah. And now it's, a, it's at the point where for Midlist writers, if you get a reprint edition of one of your old novels, people congratulate you. They go, wow, whew, how'd you pull that off? You know, and it used to be just, that, that was just standard business. That's and you got $500? Yeah, wow, <laughs> astonishing. Yeah, uh, so essentially, one of the things that the e-publishing thing is going to do is, is it's going to bring uh, so-called legacy writers, it's going to bring our backlist back into print and make it available again. Yeah, that's a big thing. Yeah, it, it really is. I, I mean, and it's going to restore essentially the archive and the history of a lot of, of genre and mid-list writing. It's going to be available again. And if nothing else, it, 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 it's quite an accomplishment just to do that. All right, please. Yeah. yeah. No, it, 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 it's. It, I, don't, I don't know how it works. So. It, 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 it's, it's a fuzzy term for less than bestseller. You know, Stephen King is obviously not mid list. Me and Rudy and Jay obviously are. Yeah. <laughs> it, it means, you know, you're getting published regularly, but not at the level where. You're you not can, a household word. And yeah, it, yeah. if I can add to that, a publisher like Tor has maybe 100 writers in their line. And they make more money off the top two or three writers than the other 97 combined. Yeah. And then they make more money off the top 10 than the other 90 combined. And pretty much everybody below about that number 10 slot is the farm team. That sooner or later, one or another of them hopefully will break up into that top slot. 
And so their mid list is deceptive because there is no low list. <laughs> you know, the yeah. mid list is the mid list is the bottom. <laughs> yeah. You know, uh, yeah. Yeah. but but the list they're talking about is that list of authors, so to speak, metaphorically. Yeah. That list. I mean, I'm sure it's in a spreadsheet somewhere, but we don't see it. Yeah. That yeah. that list of authors in the line and and their sales numbers and their profitability. We're going to take a couple more comments because we you guys have to sign some books. Oh, good. Yes. And the unintended consequence of that was that publishers could be taxed based on their inventory of unsold books, yeah. the value of unsold books as unsold? income. And yeah. Publishers yeah. went, well, then the hell with this. Yeah. And so it, it completely eliminated the mid list. That the, these small quantities of books that could reliably sell were no longer inventory. They were no longer warehouse. They couldn't yeah. afford to do it. And that was the end of it. And so yeah. writers uh, who who made a living. You know, Phil Dick was sure. your classic Midwest writer. Suddenly, you you were you were living on the book that was out. Yeah, it, it 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 destroyed what some people refer to as the long tail and uh, of retailing. Was yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So I didn't mean to go on, but that, that, no, no that's, you're, you're absolutely right. That's a very good explanation. Please. Uh, question: We're talking about books that went out of print, and uh, this is a people question. More quality versus quantity, so I apologize that people know him. John Bronner, chocolate oh, writer. Yeah, great writer. I look for his books and, because they're, to me, they're so timely, and where are they? Is, is where John Bronner deceased? So, yeah, yeah. John Bronner's yeah. dead, okay. Yeah. It, 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 really be, it, it, really, it would really be something where whoever's, wherever, whoever his, his heirs are, I suppose he, you know, he had children and, and grandchildren, uh, they, they, they should be Saying yes, we should take our granddad's books and, and bring them back out into print or, or into ebooks. In the in the digits. Yeah, in, in digital. All right, well, I, I'm going to take three yeah. more because yeah. these guys have to sign books. Please. I was just telling him, Stand on Zanzibar just came back in print last year. Oh, did? Okay, great. Great book. Oh, Fabulous right. book. Yes, please. Yeah, I, I love hearing all the optimism about the ebooks and the e publishing. And I'm, I'm wondering, you know, if, if that narrow window gets wider, certainly an awful lot more writers are going to be able to That's already happening, yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, that, 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 that's the big consideration. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, the, 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 and you alluded to yourself, the, the publishing houses, you know, especially the big six trade houses, have, have a very much a, a 
gatekeeper function that I call it, I call it the editorial proxy. You see it, the same thing in the magazines. If you go out and buy a copy of Asimov's, there are usually about six stories in any issue of Asimov's. And you might not like all six of them, but you know that an editor that you probably respect their work has selected those six from a pile of, I think it's about 2,000 stories a month for them. And so chances are you're going to like three or four of those six. It's a much better bet than just going on the internet and looking at six random manuscripts posted on the internet. That's sort of the problem potentially with e-publishing. There's a generational thing that writers with, a, with an established critical reputation of following, like, like KW and, and Rudy, even me at this point, can go into ebooks with essentially a potential audience that already exists versus a writer with no track record is now competing with, with sort of a, a very flat, very wide pool of, of comp- uh, you know, very shallow, very wide pool of competition. Because I don't know about you, but I wouldn't have the time to sit there and look through 200 ebooks to decide which 10 I wanted to read. It's hard to get the signal out of all the yeah, the Yeah, there is a. There is an app available that you're, where you're, <laughs> well, no, where, where your Kindle will not download a story that Gardner Dozois wouldn't have liked. Um. <laughs> you're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.